Well, I want to start out just by saying, don't despise the small things you do for Jesus. They could pay off in more ways than you realize. Um, I, uh, this past week, I think it was Wednesday, woke up early in the morning and just thought, because we, we were having a company breakfast and I was just thinking, you know, it's Christmas time, it's a perfect opportunity to talk about Christ. And so, like 5.30 in the morning, I really feel like the Lord was like, just write down just 10 things or what, however many you can think of on the uniqueness of the birth of Jesus. I was like, that eh, sounds good. So I started thinking of them in my head and got up real quick and, and uh, tried to write some things down here and um, didn't realize that it would pay off because that's what I'm going to speak on this morning um, because Steve's not feeling well. So um, never despise those little things that you do for the Lord. The Lord will multiply the, uh, the fruit of that. But that's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about the birth of Jesus is unique. Now, we could talk about all manner of things in terms of why Jesus himself is unique, right? Um, his earthly ministry, his life, um, uh, certainly his death, and, um, and so on. But I want to focus on the birth, and there's, just, there's a lot to look at. And I thought it would just stir our hearts as we consider, as we consider him. You know, the scriptures are clear that in beholding the Son, we're transformed into one image into the same image from one degree to glory to another. And so it's never a fruitless thing to look at Christ. You know, it's, it's a glorious thing to look at him. We need to look at him. Christianity isn't fundamentally about obeying this or that. Christianity is fundamentally about following Jesus as he is laid out in the scriptures. It's about beholding the Son, truly looking to him with the eyes of faith and letting that renew you and fuel you to remember who he is, what he's done for us, and then living out of that sense of glory and gratitude. So we want to look at this glorious Christ, but we want to look at, in particular, his unique birth. So why don't I pray, and then we'll... I've got 11 reasons. There's probably you know, 1,100 more, but I've got 11 here. I think we'll just take a, a few minutes to look at, and then we'll... Continue to fellowship or go be with your families. Let's pray. Father, again, we just come to you. We thank you, Lord, for your son. And Lord, we want to behold him. We want to see him in all of his just, just divine glory and, and coming, as Calvin used to say, clad in promises. Um, Lord, we see him as the one who has come into the world in fulfillment of prophecy and the one who comes on a rescue mission. Lord, what a unique Savior he is, what a unique birth he has, and Lord, we pray that you just cause our hearts to glow and burn as we consider these things and all the implications of them for our own faith in, um, in this world of darkness. And uh, so, Lord, just pray you would encourage us, strengthen us as we consider these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the 11 reasons are, and then I'll go back up and start at the first one. So, Jesus' birth is unique. Why? Well, number one, because he was born in fulfillment of 4,000 years of prophecy. Number two, it marked a new era in history. 
Number three, his mother was a virgin. Number four, it was a miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. Number five, it was announced and attended by angels. Number six, it was a birth in the humblest of conditions, namely an animal feeding trough. Number seven, his birth was not his beginning. Number eight, he was born a king. Number nine, his birth was attended and witnessed by common strangers. Number ten, he was born in order to die. And number eleven, his birth was a gift from God the Father to whoever would receive him by faith. And again, there's many, 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 many more things we could say. But number one, he was born in fulfillment of 4,000 years of prophecy. 4,000 years of prophecy. You're like, Chris, where do you get that? Well, think about it. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is at the beginning. And you do the genealogy right, which I'm not going to try to explain this morning from Genesis 5. But if you do the genealogy, it comes out at around 4,000 years once he comes on the scene. So we have a prophecy in Genesis 3.15 at the beginning that says what? This is right after man has fallen into sin. God confronts the serpent, the man, and the woman. And God pronounces a curse and a judgment, but he also pronounces a hope of promise. Genesis 3.15. And God says to the serpent, he's speaking to the serpent here, because God's beef is primarily with the serpent here. You know, it's important for you to realize that the promise here in Genesis 3.15 is first to that snake. Right? It's first to that serpent. And then we are caught up in the spoils of that war. But the promise is fundamentally to that serpent. Right? Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan. Because right then at that, at that point, Eve was not at enmity with Satan. Right? She was on Satan's team. And God says, I'm going to come and break up that team. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed... And her seed. So Satan has a seed. He has descendants, so to speak. And so does that woman. The woman of Eve probably ended up being a woman of faith. It seems like that from Genesis 4. He shall bruise you on the head. So the woman's seed shall bruise Satan on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. So here's a promise made to Satan that one day Satan will suffer a mortal blow. And he does it through the woman. That's interesting. He does it through the woman. doesn't just say that there will be one to come that will do it, but it's through the woman, through her seed, right? So there's this, there's a, it sort of speaks to a humanity because it's through the woman. And so throughout the rest of history, you have this, par- this, this dynamic going on of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent coexisting in this world. And you see the wars and, and you see the conflict. You see like Pharaoh and Israel. You see Jacob and Esau. You see Cain and Abel. You see David and Goliath and the Philistines. You see, these, you see this, this, this play out of the people of faith and the people of the flesh going after each other, and then, of course, Jesus comes on the scenes and he calls all the Pharisees sons of the devil, 
And of course they wanted to destroy him. This is all playing out in Genesis 3.15. But this is a promise. And of course this promise is realized first and foremost in the birth of Jesus when Jesus would come on the scene. So this is 4,000 years ago. And then I just had one maybe for the middle of redemptive history. Um, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7. God comes to David. David just says, Lord, you know, you're, I've got this great house to live in and, and, uh, and you're dwelling in this, in, this, in this, you know, ratty old tabernacle. And so I want to build you a house. And God said, well, I didn't ask you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And so God tells David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now listen to this. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it from away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So here you have a Davidic king to come who will not just be some divine king. He will be that, but he will be God's son. And this son will be on the throne of David forever. And so you've either got, you know, a throne of men assuming the role of God's king who live and then die and then live and then die and then live and then die forever, or you have a son who reigns forever. And that's what you've got in this passage. First and foremost, it does apply to Solomon, because we talk about, the, here he talks about the iniquity. But the bigger picture here is that this can only be realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the son of David. Malachi 3, so now we're toward the end of the Old Testament period, Malachi 3. I'm just showing you that 4,000 years of prophecy, I'm just talking about three of them. We could talk about... Hundreds of them. I'm just bringing out three from beginning, middle, and end. Malachi 3. And maybe these points will help you if you're going to see family today or tomorrow. Maybe you can talk about, hey, Jesus' birth is unique. Did you know that? And here's all the reasons. He comes in 4,000, born in fulfillment of 4,000 years of prophecy. Malachi chapter 3, last book in the Old Testament. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, God says. He said, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. So there's this messenger that's going to come clear the way before God. It's like he, he makes the road smooth and sort of rolls out the red carpet, as it were, for God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in 
the former years. But here it is. Here's the prophecy, certainly, of John the Baptist, right? There's this messenger coming who prepares the way of God himself. And then he switches over to the Lord because we know that this is, this is the one whom God sends is God himself. And he is the Lord, and he will come to his temple. Now what all that means, it probably just means that literally, and it probably means that spiritually. Jesus comes to his temple. We have some of the first, some of the first uh, uh, interactions of, Je- of Jesus' life in his childhood. Where is he? He's at the temple, right? He himself is the temple. Um, and then, of course, then he comes to the temple and he clears it out, right, um, before his death. He's enraged at what's going on in the temple. And then through his death, he actually establishes a temple, which is you and I, made up of living stones. So this one comes to his temple. And so God is sending this son into the world, this, as he calls him here, the the Lord. And he comes to refine and he comes to establish this temple. So, yeah, lots could be said there. But this is just three places in the Old Testament just showing that when Jesus comes on the scene, he comes clad in promises and, and prophecies. So Matthew chapter 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew one twenty three, we also hear Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus comes not as some afterthought, They didn't come and say, oh, this guy's born, looks pretty unique, let's throw some prophecies at him, see if they stick. No, he comes in fulfillment of prophecies. All right, so that's number one. Number two, it marked a new era in history. So Paul says in Galatians 4, Galatians 4, Paul says here, and he's talking about time, he mentions things about Abraham, mentions things about the law, which is the Mosaic law, and then mentions the time that Christ has brought into the world, called the time of faith or the time of the gospel, those kinds of things. And so Paul says, verse 3, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So there it is, that Jesus was born in the fullness of time. Time had sort of reached its pinnacle. It reached this point where now all of everything was sort of set up in the right way for God to bring forth his son. And this son was born under the law. That is, born under the law covenant and born of a woman, right? born of Mary. But it marked a new era in history. It's the fullness of time. When Jesus comes, and I talked about this in First Peter last time, that it is fulfillment of Old Testament history, what history had been waiting on. And Jesus says this too in Mark 1, Mark chapter 1. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, not just the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe, but the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes to bring in the fulfillment of time and the kingdom of God so that all can access him through faith and repentance. But he, his birth marks this new era in history. Colossians talks about Jesus as the beginning. Think of old covenant, new covenant. Jesus brings in this new era. Think B.C. and A.D. even in secular terms, right? Um, 
I think the BC is before Christ and the AD is Annos, what is it, Domini? Something like Annos Domini? I don't know. Adam probably knows. Something like that, right? I'm close. Um, I think it means the year of our Lord, right? And, uh, and that was established, I think, fourth century, something like that. And so all of history, even, even from the standpoint of, of those outside the early church, they dubbed his coming into the world as a, as a benchmark of history. Um, there's actually been a push, I guess I hear there's been a push to change the B.C. and, and A.D. to B.C.E. and C.E. Um, was that before Common Era and Common Era? You know, they don't like that very much, that all of history hinges on Jesus, but it does. So his birth marked a new era in history, a turning point. Number three, the mother, the mother was a virgin. And this is clear. We read this a little bit in Sunday school, but the, his mother was a virgin. I don't know how many... Um, I don't know how many births you guys have been a part of, but I can guarantee you, none of them, none of them, um, were done in this way. Apart from the scientific world, this was done by miracle. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And this is important. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, miraculous births were not uncommon in the Old Testament. There were a few of them, right? God answering prayer of, say, a Hannah or Sarah. These were miraculous, right? But not like this. Um, this woman had never been with a man. Um, there was nothing of a man inside her. And yet, she was pregnant. And the scriptures are clear from Isaiah that this would be a virgin. And so this is the sign that God was fulfilling history. And as far as I know, in Isaiah 7, we could go back there and read the context, but you see Old Testament commentators try to say, well, there's a partial fulfillment in this kid or that child or that boy, and there's just nothing in history. There's nothing in history that, that, that rings, checks all the boxes with this particular individual. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us, born of a virgin. There's nobody else in history like that, and that's why Mary fits the bill. So the mother was a virgin in fulfillment of prophecy. It's a miracle, and I hope you don't stumble at that. I guess historically liberalism scoffs at it, I guess people in their naturals, who have naturalist tendencies or perhaps they say, you know, we only trust science. You know, um, you know of course they're going to bristle at these things because they live in a closed universe. But we know that if you believe in God, if you believe Genesis 1-1, miracles aren't hard for you after that. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, born of a virgin. Number four, his birth was was brought about by miraculous conception. 
by the Holy Spirit. So a little bit like the other one, but the other one just highlighting the fact that she's a virgin, so this is a miracle. But also just now we, have, we sort of know the mechanics of how it came about. Well, how did it come about? Well, by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's not a cop-out. That's what the text says. It says it several different times. One eighteen. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, And then down in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then over in Luke, <clears throat> over in Luke 34 to 38, this is worth reading. They pro- they proclaiming here, the angel is proclaiming to, to Mary who he's going to be. He's going to fulfill all this Old Testament prophecy. He'll be of the son of David. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, that's a good question. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So the language here might be um, familiar to you. Think of what he says here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. You get this sort of hovering effect. There's this overshadowing, this brooding of the Holy Spirit. And this is how this conception comes about. The language harkens back to what? Genesis, right? The first creation. Genesis 1-2, and it says, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And the Spirit was there to effect that. And bring that to pass. The Spirit was there sort of waiting, you know, that's sort of the picture you see of the eagle hovering. And God said, let there be light, and light was. Well, here's that spirit, that spirit hovering over this little girl, and God's going to say, now, let there be light. And then the spirit is there to bring about the new creation, the human body of Jesus Christ, who would be the God-man. It's amazing. This is all new creation language. It's all creation language. Divine conception. That's what's going on here. When Jesus comes into the world, he begins the new creation. This is, again, why Colossians says that he is the beginning. Well, so what else could that mean? It doesn't say he's the first and the last there, or the beginning and the end. He says he is the beginning. And it means that he's the beginning of a new era. And it starts at his conception. A miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. Number five, it was announced and attended by angels. Steve talked about this at the Christmas concert, which was great. But let's read this. It's worth reading. Luke 2, 8 through 14. In the same region, that is in Bethlehem, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. So here you got the blue-collar guys on third shift. Right? And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. They brought that out. There's the suddenness to it. Oh man, that's just the way the Lord works in history too. Like these big-time events. It's just Boom! You know, right there. What did it say in Acts chapter 2 when the wind came? Suddenly there was a rush of wind. You know, it's like, all of a sudden, and they knew God was at work. The same thing that's going on here. All of a sudden, angel. 
right in front of you. It's interesting, right? Because it's not like, what is that? And then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, over the course of an hour. It's boom, right there, right in front of you. There's just suddenly. You know what that says? You know what that says? Huh? Be ready. They're right there. They're right there. You know? When Jesus comes back, it says he appears. The appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, he's right there. You know? They hear us, they see us, they're there. And they just appear. Isn't that... That's amazing, isn't it? Suddenly, suddenly appears. And of course, (laughs) of course, they're terrified. Because they don't show up, you know, looking like another shepherd, I would guess, right? Like, oh, it's Bill, you know? How you doing, Bill? It's an angel. It's an angel standing before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So these angels suddenly stand, this angel suddenly stands before them with the glory of God. And, and you always have to keep in mind, like this is all because Jesus is here now. This is not just to show, you know, there is a spiritual heavenly realm. It's part of that, but they're here because Jesus is here. And so they're here. So this heaven is on the move. You know, it's doing something in there wanting people to know. Verse 10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Man, if heaven thinks it's good news, it's good news, right? If heaven thinks it's good news, it's good news. If it's going to bring great joy, really, if they say it's going to bring great joy, it's going to bring great joy which will be for all the people. Verse 11, for today in the city of David, so this is why there's good news of great joy, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you, right? So he's telling the, he's telling the shepherds this because it's like, okay, he's going to be born. What, what should we be looking for here? I mean, should we be looking for this you know, chariot and entourage, you know, with all of these horses and all this fanfare and you know, all these things, and they're like, hmm. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's how you'll know. I mean, that's odd. You don't see that every day. That's how you'll know. Lying in a manger. And right after they say that, the heavenly host appear. And suddenly, there it is again, there appeared with, an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is what heaven is so excited about, the peace that Jesus Christ brings to men. Men are at such war. Peace is no small thing, is it? I mean, think about all the people in this world who need peace. Peace for their own souls. People go through so many storms in life, you know. 
how can you have peace? Jesus brings it. You know, because ultimately, if you know God, if you're reconciled to God, the greatest storm has been taken care of. You know. I was trying to remember what somebody said the other day that, oh, I wish I could remember it. Something about Jesus experiencing the storm of Calvary that we might have the calm of peace. And the angels know that. Angels are invested in that. The angels love this. They, 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 they wonder at this. It causes them to sing. Glory to God in the highest. This is something God is doing on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now I don't know with these angels if God said to go sing. Like, okay, now you guys show up and sing. Or if they're just wanting to sing. I think they're probably just wanting to sing. You know? I think they're just wanting to sing. And, they, and, and again, just, oh man. Oh gosh. This just, this just speaks to us so clearly about how we're to feel about Jesus. You know? We don't. We should. But we don't. But they do. And they tell us, this is, you should be excited. You should be so happy about Christ. We're so happy about him. We don't even receive the benefits of salvation. You do. Oh, you should be singing for joy. We should be singing for joy. Brethren, don't despise growing to know Christ more. Don't think you know it all. You don't know it all. Go deeper with Jesus. Behold him more. Think on him more. Be glad for him. I really mean that. If we're going to maintain as a church and be vibrant and useful in this world, it's because we're going to think that there's no other, there's no more glorious reality to contemplate than him. And that's not just preacher speak. That's what the angels tell you. Right? I don't know what gets you excited. I don't know what motivates you. I don't know what gets your heart stirred and warm. I don't know what, I don't know what makes you want to just daydream, but it should be Jesus. It really should be. And you know, it doesn't because we don't spend much time looking at him. We don't spend much time reading the word. You know, We're more fascinated by other things. This passage reminds us that we should be praising God. There's joy all over this passage. There's glory all over this passage. And again, it's all because of the birth of Jesus. There is a heavenly realm of celestial beings that love to participate and observe Jesus' person and work in history. Christianity is so much bigger than our personal lives. Number six, he was born in the humblest of conditions, namely an animal feeding trough. And that's what, that's what the angels said. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in claws and lied him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Lied him in a manger. You know, the angels are sitting there, you know, glorifying and praising God and showing up in glory and just splendor. But he's not. You know, he's not. 
He doesn't show up like that. We watched The Nativity recently. How many of you guys have seen that movie? Man, it's so good, isn't it? So good. Yeah, maybe they got the Magi timeline wrong. But still, what a picture. It's just not man-made stuff, is it? What do we learn from the manger? At least we learn that life is just not about vain glory. Right? It's not about the boastful pride of life. It's not about it's not about accolades and esteem in the eyes of men, you know? It's just not about that. Sure be good at a skill. Set yourself apart in a skill, great. You know, I talked to guy. I talked to people. We had a little caroling thing the other night in uh, in our neighborhood, and um, I went down and I was responsible to manage the fire pits, which was fun. I didn't want to do it at first, but Paige signed me up. She's like, "You love fire." I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so anyway, so so anyway, I went down to manage it. You know, and you're down there and you're talking to these guys and you ask them how they're doing and. You know, they love to tell you all the ways they're awesome. And you just listen to it and you're like, you forget, you know, you forget this is what the world lives for. They live for this, you know, we're an A-team, you know, we're, we're incredible, we're this, we're that. I mean, yeah, we've set ourselves apart by all these things and we're awesome and just on and on and on. This one guy would just go on and on and on. One guy would do that. The other guy was like, dude, I'm, I'm like, you know, like the, I'm like the hunting king, you know, I... I hunt and I've been hunting and my, my kids they're all going to be like man's men and, you know they're going to hunt and they're going to they're going to be incredible and you know they're not going to be about all this they're going to be like this and it's just all vain glory it's like yeah cool Make, I'm glad if they can hunt well and glad if your business is incredible and like the best that human beings have ever known but it just you just realize it's just life that's just not what life is about is promoting yourself it's not about setting yourself apart in the eyes of men. You know, Jesus doesn't need to... What are you going to sit there and talk about when Jesus was born a manger? What are you going to say? I mean, if anyone had the right to come in with, I really am the greatest being in all the world. What are you... What do you do? And I'm not saying it's about poverty, right? It's about humility. It's about obeying the Lord and knowing the Lord in all circumstances. It's about putting others before yourself always. It's about attending to the least among us. That's what we learn from the feeding trough. It's a good thing to meditate on, is that feeding trough. His birth was unique. His birth was unique because his birth was not his beginning. Um, Contrary to everybody else, his birth was not his beginning. Jesus is and was the preexistent divine Son of God. 
Obviously, you know, there's been much debate throughout church history on whether or not Jesus is God. The text that's so clear that just destroys it is John, John 1. I mean, familiar passage, but who cares? It's so clear and good. In the beginning, that is, in the beginning, at the beginning of time, at the beginning of the world, was the Word. Not in the beginning the Word came about, but in the beginning He was there. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God's own self, God's own fellow. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. So if it's a thing, visible or invisible, it came into being through Jesus. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, so that's clear. So the word is God. And he is the creator. And then, lo and behold... Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Remaining and being what he always was as God, he became something he never had been, which was flesh. He took to himself a true humanity. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, this is the stuff of myth and legend, right? No, this is real. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten, glory as the monogenes, the one and only, the one of a kind from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God. He's the preexistent one. But he was preexistent as the Son. You know, there was a lot of debate about that in church history too. When did he become the Son? Was it at his baptism? Was it at his resurrection? And much, much, much debate. But suffice it to say that the essence of the nature of God's gift in, let's say, John 3.16 is predicated or built upon the reality of the eternal sonship of Jesus. That God, when he gave, did not just give a random spirit or a divine principle or the force. He gave his son. And this frames the entire gospel. God gives the Son of God that he might bring many sons to God and to glory. The nature of God is essentially familial. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus did not become the son at his baptism. He did not become the son at the resurrection. He was son in those moments there in the stable. And he was son for all eternity before that. His birth was not his beginning. He was the preexistent divine son. Number eight, he was born a king. He was born a king, Matthew 2. We don't really know how long after the birth, but we just know that it was after. It was between his birth and perhaps two years old. 
that the Magi come. So chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That was really threatening, right? It was a really threatening thing to say to Herod. For we saw his, for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Jesus was born a king. He did not become king. He was installed as king, but he was born a king. He was destined to be a king. And this is why when they come, verse 11, there's passages in the Old Testament about kings bringing their glory um, from the far corners of the earth. But listen to this. Verse 11, chapter 2. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now, I think because we're in Matthew, worship just doesn't mean honor him. I think it probably means they knew more about him than others. I mean, Gentiles typically did better than the Jews in understanding the identity of Jesus. Canaanite woman, case in point. Roman centurion, case in point. Magi, case in point. <laughs> they all just knew more about him than everybody else that were closest to him, which was kind of crazy. But here they are worshiping Jesus, and they open their treasures. Think about this, you know, in the house, probably very common dwelling. There's Jesus, and these, these, these wealthy men, these wise men, and they bring treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Why do they bring these gifts? Well, you bring your gifts to honor and to homage a king. You know, this little boy, he's a king. He's the king of the world. He's the king of all kings. Another way this is stated is just by the title attached to Jesus' name. You all know that Christ is not his last name, right? That's his title. He is Messiah, anointed king. This ties back into Old Testament history where the kings of Israel were anointed as they were established. Jesus is the anointed king. You also learn, though, from the Old Testament that kings are to be warriors and generals, you know? Destroying the foes of the people of God. That's where David fell when he thought that that could be put on hold or here today is an exception. I don't need to go out. I've already won enough battles. But kings historically are supposed to go out to lead their people in war. And this is surely what Jesus' birth was to ultimately bring about. He was the king coming to fight our battles. You know. He was born to fight and wage war and defeat the serpent to crush his head. He was born a king. And this is why we get the glimpse when he's 12 years old that we already, he already has a self-consciousness. That's, what we're, that's one of the main things we're supposed to learn from that, is that it wasn't like 30 years old, God said, hey, by the, you know, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do for me now. When Jesus was 12, he already knew. Hey, mom, dad, don't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? Why are you so late to the part, you know, why are you so late to this reality? 
He knew who he was. He's a king. He's just biding his time. Until then, he's anointed. And then he goes off into the wilderness. All that. But he's born a king. Number nine, his birth was attended and witnessed by common strangers. We already talked about the shepherds. The shepherds, the common folks, again, like similar to the manger, you know, God doesn't come for the elite, the societal elite, political elites, but he comes to for common people, lowly people, people that are forgotten by the world. I'm constantly reminded at heaven's values versus the values of earth and men. You know, they're just totally different. You know, I think I was we were singing that song and it hit really struck me with freshness the other night when we were singing is Oh Holy Night that says and the soul felt its worth. Yeah. And uh, I think that was in light of the shepherds, right? The light shone and the soul felt its worth or whatever. And I was like, man. As the, as the shepherds sit there and reflect what just happened to them. How special they would have felt. You know? Like that, you know, they live a very mundane life probably. Probably pretty difficult. Out in the weather all the time. And they were just given, they were, they were arguably the first human beings outside of Mary and Joseph to hear of this incredible event. And again, that tells you something about God. It's not about where you're at in life. It's just, it's just, it just has very little to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, listen to Paul. He says that. For us, 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brethren. Right? Consider your calling, Dave, Albert, Carrie, me. Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise, according to the flesh. God didn't choose you because you were really wise. You'd be a great cabinet member, right, in his kingdom, because you're so wise. Or me, you know. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, God, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Number 10, he was born in order to die to save men from sin and death. Matthew one twenty one. the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So that was his name. When he was born, that's what they began to call him, you know, right when he was born. And every time that name was said, that mission and that purpose was reinforced. He's come to die. You know, we're all born Everyone born will die. But he was actually born for the express purpose of dying. That's why he came. Number 11, his birth was a gift from God the Father to whoever would receive him by faith. Luke two ten, remember the angels again said, great news of great joy which will be for all the people. All the people. 
this is, again, just reflecting on this, he was not born to just live his life a part of an earthly family. It just wasn't his main, I mean, he did, you know, he, he honored his parents, and, but, but it was bigger than that, right? He was not born to be a part of an earthly family forever. He was born to create a new heavenly family made up of, as the angel says, all people. He was a gift to the world. Certainly a gift to Mary, but also a gift to all of us. And then again, I just want to finish with some thoughts in John 3.16, and then we're done. And some of these things I've already said in Sunday school, but I'll just say them again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Notice the universal, non-discriminate invitation for all to have eternal life upon believing in Jesus. It's whoever believes in him. There's a lot of people that'll fit in that whoever. Whoever. Doesn't matter gender, color, finances, mental state. If you can believe on the Son, you will be sure to have eternal life. God the Father and God as Father gave his Son. And this speaks to God's essential being. God is not fundamentally Redeemer, God is not even fundamentally King or Creator first. He is Father. The fatherhood of God. If you're going to like peel all of it back and then you're down at the bottom, you see that's, that's who he is. Because he always has been. Hasn't always been Redeemer. Hasn't always been Creator. But he's always been Father. Because he's always had a son. He's always had a son. And it's as the Father that he creates the world. It's as the Father he judges the world. It's as the Father he redeems the world. And as the Father, he will consummate history. The gift of Jesus did not come from a cold heart of obligation, but from a Father's heart. And this Father gives the greatest of all gifts to very unpredictable recipients. John 3.16 tells us, to the world. Oh, the world. The world that does not know Jesus. The world that does not want Jesus. The world that if you love it, you hate God. The world that is in enmity with God. God gives his son for. The world that sought and succeeded in killing his son. That was the, that was the one that God said, I, I love you. I want to save you. I want to have mercy on you. This is the heart of our Father. It's only through the death of the sinless Savior that we can be saved from the wrath of God, the Father, and the Lamb. See, God gives His Son out of mercy. You know, it's not, He doesn't, He really doesn't have to. He really doesn't have to. I mean, he sort of obligates himself because he's so loving, but it's bound to his nature of love. There's no, there's no outside force saying, you've got to do this. He's 
doing it because he's a loving father. It's a great privilege to know God, isn't it? It's, it's not... It's not a given, you know, I hear people talk about, I know I mentioned this before, but you hear, you ask people, you know, do you know the Lord? And they're like, of course. Like, of course, what? What do you mean, of course? I hope we don't talk like that. Of course, what do you mean? Like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not an idiot. I mean, there's a sense in which that, it makes all the sense in the world to want to know God. But on the other hand, you have such a horrible view of the reality of sin and, and such a horrible view of the state and your, the plight that you're in, and such a horrible view of the reality that God didn't have to do anything to save you. You know, rather we should just say, "Yeah, by God's grace, you know, by God's mercy, I know Him." It's not, of course, as if you're smarter than everybody else. And John three sixteen tells us that perishing is the ultimate issue. So that they'll, they'll not perish. The eternal loss of, any well, of, of all well-being is the lot of those who don't believe. And faith is the key. Believe on the Son and you will have life. It's the gospel. Faith in Jesus is the opposite of the impulse we all have to have faith in ourselves or reliance upon our own goodness. Faith in Jesus says, you are true, you are sufficient, I am empty, I am bankrupt of all goodness, and I need you. And that faith unites us to Christ, in whom we have eternal life. So his birth is unique for all manner of reasons, brethren, so hope that encourages you as you maybe meet with family and friends in the next however many hours, and tomorrow, maybe the next day. Think about these things, and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your son. Lord, we could just contemplate the glory of his person forever. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to strengthen us to to love and follow him uh, more and more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.